Welcome to the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society. Welcome to ITSP Magazine. You're listening to a new episode of Stories from Space Podcast, where your host, Matthew Williams, examines the history of human spaceflight, the breakthroughs that revolutionized our understanding of the universe and our place in it, and the brave individuals who work tirelessly to advance the frontiers of our understanding. Knowledge is power, now more than ever. The authors acknowledge that this podcast was recorded on the traditional unceded lands of the Lekwungen peoples. We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Because that goal will serve to organize and measure the best of our energies and skills. Because that challenge is one that we're willing to accept, one we are unwilling to postpone, and one we intend to win, and the others too. On September 12, 1962, President John F. Kennedy delivered this historic speech to the faculty, students, and honored guests of Rice University in Texas. It was with these words that Americans would launch the Apollo program, which would peak six years later with the very first landing on the moon. By the time the Apollo program was over, by 1972, 12 astronauts and six missions were sent to the lunar surface. Today, some 50 years later, NASA is busy preparing for the next lunar missions that will see an astronauts walk on the surface of the moon. These will include the first woman and first person of color, which will land as part of Artemis III in 2025. The question many ask is, why did it take so long for us to get back to the moon? In order to answer that question, we need to take a good look at the Apollo program and everything that followed. I'm Matt Williams, and this is Stories from Space. Hello, and welcome to the inaugural episode of Stories from Space here at ITSP Magazine. Now, as the name suggests, Stories from Space is all about the history of human spaceflight and current news in that same uh, domain. Today, I want to talk to you about the Artemis program and the long-awaited return to the moon. Specifically, in to address a question which I've been asked a few times uh, in the course of uh, my career, which is, why did it take so long? Um, there is a certain edge to this when it's asked. There are those who maintain that the moon landing of 1969 was a hoax, and that the fact that we haven't gone back since is uh, a form of uh, proof to that effect. Well, not to entertain the uh, moon landing hoax theory, but there's actually very good reasons why the Apollo program happened the way it did, and why it's taken uh, this long for NASA and its uh, international partners and commercial partners to, to begin uh, contemplating sending crewed missions to the moon once again. And basically the TLDR version is, well, the space race was very expensive and 
Once it was over, once all the effort had been made and the resources spent, the accomplishments, absolutely immeasurable, which would go on to have an enduring legacy, well, they were, they were not sustainable. They could not be repeated again, uh, in part because of how. Uh, how the Soviets and uh, the American space program went about sending people to space. It was very expensive, it was admittedly inefficient, and they could not afford to do it again for many decades. And in the meantime, uh, other programs, other objectives needed to be set, which would ultimately put uh, us in a position where we could start thinking about returning to the moon and taking the next steps, which in this case uh, includes crewed missions to Mars. And that is the position we find ourselves in today. But to get here, as I said before, one has to take a look at the Apollo program and how it was conducted. And not just Apollo, but uh, the entire, uh, all the activities of NASA and the Soviet space program during the Cold War, during the whole space race. And as uh, my listeners are no doubt aware, that was characterized by competition between two superpowers who were determined to prove that their way was the right way, their socioeconomic model, and who were also intent on demonstrating superiority in space and dominance in space, because at the end of the day, uh, dominance in space was very much connected to uh, superiority in terms of weapons, in terms of their nuclear stockpiles, and in terms of their scientific accomplishments and uh, what they could, uh, their levels of production and their standards of living that they could ensure for their civilians. Now, things began in earnest in 1957. The Soviets achieved an early lead with the launch of Sputnik, and this put the entire Western world into... Uh, uh, a short-lived state of panic as they thought that uh, the Russians are now capable of spying on them and who knows what else they could put up there. However, tempers and uh, anxieties cooled as they realized this was a simple communication satellite, but it meant from that point onward that the United States and Russia were launched in a race to get there first. And the objective in all this uh, was very clearly how do we put human beings into space? And ever since the end of World War II, this was something that had been on the minds of all aeronautical and aerospace engineers. The Germans had demonstrated a superiority in terms of rocketry during the war, and they had managed to send their V-2 rockets um, up to, into orbit. And then they were able to bring them down again uh, on, on top of targeted cities and detonate high-yield conventional warheads. It was more the speed of the weapon the speed that it would achieve coming down on a target from orbit that caused such great dread and such great fear. And so, of course, after the war, developments in uh, space exploration technologies, rockets and space capsules, they paralleled and, and grew from similar efforts to design uh, ballistic missiles. So as the Soviets and as the Americans and uh, the China and India would follow suit, as would many European countries, they all saw the potential there. For every missile we make that's all the more elaborate, has multiple stages, and can deliver multiple warheads, applications arise for sending payloads into Earth orbit, such as uh, scientific research uh, satellites, ones that can study Earth's atmosphere, study space radiation, solar radiation, and yes, and, and monitor the Earth's surface uh, from orbit. And beyond that, there was 
the inevitable uh, logical step of, well, then can we also send crewed spacecraft? So astronauts can be put into orbit where they too can conduct research. And above all else, the ability to do this would confer a great deal of prestige on, on the nations that did it, and it would demonstrate the sophistication of their technological base. So with Sputnik and all the artificial satellites that would follow in the coming years, NASA and the Soviet space program became very committed, very focused on sending the first man to space. And uh, much like with Sputnik, the Russians took an early lead. And their Vostok program sent Yuri Gagarin to space on April 12, 1961. And that was the Vostok 1 mission. Before it was complete, the Vostok program would send six astronauts to orbit, and that included the first woman, Valentina Tereshkova, who launched on June 16, 1963, as part of Vostok 6. Now, NASA would follow suit pretty quickly with their Mercury program, which began with the Freedom 7 mission that saw Alan Shepard go to space on May 5th, 1961. And this was just a few short weeks after Yuri Gagarin went up. And by 1963, it too would send six astronauts to orbit. However, this round did go to the Soviets. Not only did they get there first, but their, their spacecraft managed to stay in orbit longer and achieve greater distances from Earth and uh, achieve more orbits in total. And this was in spite of the fact that the Vostok spacecraft and the R-7 Semyarka rockets were, well, they were less sophisticated than uh, the NASA counterparts, the Mercury Redstone rockets and the Mercury spacecraft. However, NASA's, uh, this technical superiority would be further demonstrated in the ensuing programs. Uh, the Soviets uh, attempted to make the next step with the Voskhod program, which included an upgraded uh, Vostok spacecraft, that would be capable of housing a crew of two to three, and the Voskhod rocket, which was a variation on the R-7 Semyarka rocket that had sent the Vostok spacecraft to orbit. NASA, meanwhile, developed the uh, Gemini spacecraft and the Titan II rocket to send crews to low-Earth orbit uh, for longer periods so that they could conduct extravehicular activity, or EVAs, spacecraft rendezvous, and uh, all manner of exercises that would prepare for crewed missions to the moon and th with the Apollo program. Now, this round very clearly went to NASA. Um, the Soviet uh, Voskhod program uh, ran between 64 and 65 and accomplished only two missions, which stayed in orbit for about a day each. Now, on the first one, uh, this constituted the first multi-crewed uh, spacecraft launch. The second one, uh, the first EVA, or spacewalk, took place too, so these were rather important firsts. However, uh, NASA's Gemini program, they once again took a little longer to get there. Uh, their missions ran from 1965 to 66, but whereas uh, the Soviets had only conducted two missions, uh, NASA had conducted ten. And uh, they lasted, uh, at the very least, a single day, but uh, they managed to establish a record of 13 days, 18 hours, and 35 minutes with the Gemini 7 mission. They, too, conducted all manner of spacewalks and uh, also spacecraft rendezvous. So, so by 1966, the level of, uh, of technical expertise and experience that uh, NASA had obtained with its uh, astronauts and its missions uh, was now... Uh, superseding that of the Soviets. So they were now in a good position to prepare 
to send uh, crewed missions to the moon, whereas it was clear to the Soviets that they were beginning to lag behind and that the moon might be an objective that was just uh, bridged too far. And uh, a good deal of this had to do with the death of Sergei Korolev, the chief designer and engineer for the Soviet space program, in 1966. But even so, it went beyond this one man, and really had to do with just the, uh, the problems the Soviet Union was facing internally at the time. In fact, the Soviets did announce, prior to the moon landing, that they did not care about landing crews on the moon or competing with NASA in this regard, though they did spend considerable effort and resources trying to develop the necessary uh, rockets and spacecraft that would be able to take crews there. So while NASA was developing the three-stage Saturn V rocket to take the elaborate and complicated Apollo spacecraft with a three-person crew to the moon, the Soviets, they were developing the N1 three-stage rocket, which uh, never successfully made it to, to space, and the Zon spacecraft, which also wouldn't make it there because of failures with the rocket. But as we all know, the Apollo missions were a success. Uh, crewed missions began in 1967, and the first was a, there was a terrible accident. That was the Apollo 1 fire, where the, uh, the spacecraft a malfunction caused the oxygen inside the cabin to ignite, and yes, the astronauts were burned alive. It was very horrible. Uh, nevertheless, uh, a series of uncrewed missions followed, which were then followed by Apollo 7 to 10, which launched between October 1968 and May 1969, which were a series of dress rehearsals that flew to low Earth orbit or performed circumlunar flights, so they flew around the moon but didn't attempt a, a landing. Then came Apollo 11, the first lunar landing on July 16th, 1969. Though it would be followed by five more crewed missions and a total of 12 astronauts would walk on the lunar surface, this was seen as the culmination and the climax of the space race. And though it signaled a victory for NASA that they demonstrated supremacy in space, the accomplishment itself was felt all around the world, much like uh, Yuri Gagarin's historic flight. It was uh, something that, as the uh, Apollo lander plaque said, they came in peace for all mankind. So it was very much a, uh, an accomplishment that people all over the world uh, were inspired by and took pride in and will never forget as long as they live. So at this point, the question bears repeating. Why has it taken us so long? By 1973, the Apollo program was officially ended, and at this juncture, both NASA and the Soviet space program, they needed to set new goals, and these needed to be uh, consistent with a changing budget environment and a changing geopolitical landscape. A lot had happened since the space age kicked off, and with the, the competition now effectively settled and over, the question of what now was upon them both. And it's important to emphasize that it wasn't just a question of cost that put them in the positions they were in at, at this point in 1972-1973. It was also the fact that for the entire space race, the focus was always on getting there and getting there first. And this meant developing a program and uh, mission architectures and rockets and spacecraft that were optimized for rapid deployment and not things like reusability when it came to uh, getting to the moon, getting beyond Earth, doing a translunar injection. 
The focus there, too, was getting there first and repeating it as much as possible, as much as budgets would allow for. It was not on developing the necessary infrastructure that would allow astronauts to keep going there. And so, by the end of the Apollo era, basically the Soviets and NASA had manufactured so much equipment, spent so much money, which effectively ended up in the ocean or in low Earth orbit as space debris, because all the components were expendable. They were designed as delivery mechanisms to get the astronauts to space or to the moon, get them home again, and be disposed of. And that's what's different about the space program today. It's also what was different about uh, the space program after the Apollo era, from 1973 right on up into the mid-2000s. The goal had shifted from getting to space to staying in space. And this meant developing space stations. It also meant developing reusable spacecraft. And this would bear fruit in the form of the Soviet Salyut space stations, which would uh, eventually lead to Mir. And for the United States, it would lead to Skylab and the spatial program. And eventually, the two the two space agencies with the uh, fall of the Soviet Union, they would come together in 1993 to announce a program for an international space station, and it represented the several different programs on behalf of the European Space Agency, NASA, and the Roscosmos, the new Russian space agency. And they combined plans that they all had for independent space stations and came up with a modular design that would include a Russian segment, an American segment, and then, of course, uh, other segments added by the European Space Agency, the Japanese Space Agency, and the Canadian Space Agency, who, fresh from their success with the Canadarm, or Robotic Arm 1, as NASA called it, which was used aboard, aboard the Space Shuttle, and used extensively in assembling the ISS, well, the Canadian Space Agency now contributed the Canadarm 2, a more sophisticated, more advanced version of their robotic arm. And this has gone on to play a major role in ISS operations, particularly with the docking and undocking of spacecraft. And this would ultimately add up to the ISS that we know and love today. I should also mention the uh, Buran Space Shuttle, which the Soviets attempted to develop in the late 70s to compete with the NASA space shuttle. However, only two prototypes were ever built, and they never conducted a, a successful orbital uh, test flight. So the program was abandoned due to uh, the budget environment, and yes, with the collapse of the Soviet Union, it was never resurrected. In any case, the creation of the ISS, the development of the space shuttle program, of reusability and all the research that both have allowed for, especially the ISS. As of today, April 18th, 2022, it has been in continuous operation for 21 years, 5 months, and 16 days. And it has allowed for all manner of scientific research, in particular the effects of microgravity on plants, on animals, and on human physiology, all of which is going towards the next Great Leap, which will be uh, long-duration missions to the moon and long-duration missions to deep space, ultimately leading to Mars and other locations. So all of this, this research has proven very, very vital for humanity's future in space, not only going there, but living and working there for extended periods of time. So basically, all of the research and development that would have been needed 
to create a sustainable program of lunar exploration in the Apollo era is happening today. And the reason it's happening today was because, well, it didn't happen sooner, but it couldn't happen sooner. There was no way that, armed with the technology they had at the time and the the reality of geopolitics in the late 1950s, right on through to the uh, 1970s, there was no way that the international cooperation and the slow build-up, the gradual pace that would lead to humans being sent to, to orbit first, then the creation of a space station in orbit so they could stay there, followed by the creation of reusable vehicles that would then carry astronauts and cosmonauts to the moon, and another space station built around the moon that would be able to receive them and then allow them to travel down to the surface using a reusable lunar lander. Right? That's, that's the only way in which the Apollo program could have uh, unfolded in such a way that astronauts would have been able to go back there on a regular basis rather than us having to wait 50 years. Now, if that's all starting to sound familiar, it's probably because you've seen 2001 A Space Odyssey, which is what Arthur C. Clarke envisioned as the future of human spaceflight and uh, what allowed for the colonization of the moon. Um, but of course, he, he predicted that this would come on the heels of the Apollo program and would be established a little over 30 years later. So he was off on the on that. But otherwise, he was uh, just adjust the dates and he was pretty prophetic. And there's simply no way that all of that could have happened back then. In much the same way, there was there was no likely scenario in which uh, NASA and the Soviet space program would now set their sights beyond the moon and send uh, crewed missions to Mars, which many, including Werner von Braun, the famed former Nazi rocket scientist who helped NASA um, who helped NASA build the Apollo rockets through Operation Paperclip, he advocated for missions to Mars by the 1980s. There were several mission planners who hoped to see that very thing, the next great leap happening in uh, the next decade rather than several decades hence. But there too, there was no way in which that could have realistically happened. Not with the budget environment or the changing geopolitical landscape by the 1970s. In fact, according to uh, estimates compiled in 1973, the Apollo program cost the United States taxpayers $25.4 billion between 1961 and 1972. When adjusted for inflation, that comes out to $164.47 billion in today's money. And spending peaked in 1966, at which point the federal government was spending 4.5% of its budget on base travel alone. And that's compared to what is typical of today, 0.05%. Add to that the fact that the United States had been fighting the Vietnam War for 10 years, but with involvement going back to 1953. And that cost the U.S. taxpayers a uh, estimated 134.5 billion, which, when adjusted for inflation, works out to 1.24 trillion. So you can understand why the budget environment by 1973 was as constrictive as it was. Now the Soviets were in, in much the uh, the same situation. Even though they had officially ceded the race to the moon, they continued to develop the necessary technology behind closed doors. They suffered uh, setbacks and uh, a rather terrible accident when one of their L-1 rockets exploded on the launch pad and caused significant damage to the uh, 
what is today known as the Baikonur Cosmodrome. In the end, this program cost them, even though they had nothing to show for it there, it cost them between five and ten billion dollars US, which comes out to 32.65 billion when adjusted for inflation. So there was no likely scenario at that time by the early 70s in which the Soviets and uh, NASA could do anything other than take a gradual approach to developing the capacity for staying in space and conducting all the necessary research that would eventually go into the next great leap. And that brings us to where we are today. And where we are today began in the mid-2000s with the Constellation program. In 2004, the administration of George W. Bush authorized this program to create a new family of uh, heavy launch systems, ones that would be capable of sending uh, crew and cargo to low Earth orbit and to the moon, the long-term aim of which was to establish the necessary infrastructure to conduct missions to Mars. And so these rockets were appropriately named the Ares rockets. Unfortunately, the program was cancelled in 2010 due to the massive economic downturn that had happened by the end of the Bush administration, and only one test flight involving an Ares-1 rocket took place. Uh, luckily, a few months later, the Obama administration inaugurated a new program, which was called the Journey to Mars, or as NASA would uh, eventually call it, the Moon to Mars, which took the designs of the Ares rockets, especially the Ares-5, and rolled it over into the space launch system. And this would consist of a two-stage rocket with solid rocket boosters on the side, and it would be capable of launching the what came to be known as the Orion spacecraft to low Earth orbit or on a translunar injection. It would also be used to construct the Deep Space Gateway, as it was called at the time, which has since evolved into the Lunar Gateway, and that would be paired with a deep space transport which would travel between the Lunar Gateway and Mars. So the idea was the SLS will launch an Orion capsule with a four-person crew. They will rendezvous with the Lunar Gateway. They'll transfer their Orion capsule to the deep space transport. And that transport will rely on solar electric propulsion where it gathers electricity through solar panels, uses that to power a powerful ion engine, and then makes a uh, six to nine month travel to Mars, where it then rendezvous with a second base station, known as the Mars Base Camp, um, which will have a reusable lander that will allow the crews to land on the surface, conduct science operations, return to their ship, and uh, yes, and when the crew was finished their mission, they would then use the deep space transport to return to the moon and then head back to Earth. Appropriately, the plan called for crewed missions not to begin sooner than the early 2030s. So this was a very long-term vision, and it is the pathway that NASA has been on ever since. Some modifications have been made along the way. For starters, the original Moon to Mars plan included an asteroid redirect mission. Uh, this mission would consist of a robotic spacecraft uh, towing a near-Earth asteroid, or a, a large piece of it, to lunar orbit so that a crewed Orion mission could rendezvous with it and uh, practice uh, extravehicular activity and rendezvousing with a celestial object in space 
in preparation for crewed mission to Mars. But within the transitional funding uh, bill that was uh, passed in 2016, NASA was told to drop this in favor of something more cost-effective. So instead, what uh, emerged was a plan to send the accrued Orion mission to rendezvous with a lunar gateway and use a reusable lunar lander to transport down to the surface. And this would be NASA's uh, long-awaited return to the moon, and it would uh, then be followed by crewed missions to Mars. And the timetable for all this was that the Lunar Gateway was to be established by 2028, that a mission to the lunar surface would happen shortly thereafter, and that by 2033, the deep space transport would be integrated with the Gateway so that uh, crewed missions to Mars could take place. Uh, however, the Trump administration, under the uh, leadership of uh, Vice President Mike Pence, altered this timetable um, in order to prioritize a lunar landing no later than 2024. And this had the effect of uh, shaking up the staff and personnel at NASA. They were forced to make some uh, rather radical changes. For starters, they realized that um, a crewed mission cannot be made to the lunar surface using the Lunar Gateway by 2024. We won't have it set up. So they decided to um, instead contract the launch services for the Lunar Gateway, or the initial elements of it, to SpaceX. Um, however, the lunar landing itself would involve a reusable uh, vehicle that would uh, be launched either by a commercial provider or along with the SLS to make the moon landing happen uh, by its target date. And due to um, delays and the ultimately the effects of this big shakeup, NASA has pushed the launch date for the Artemis uh, 3 mission, which will be the, uh, the return to the moon, to 2025. This last aspect is uh, perhaps the only thing that can be uh, characterized as unnecessary. Pushing up the timetable has caused all kinds of, uh, of confusion and at this point it's not entirely clear how this will play out but uh, NASA remains committed to uh, making Artemis happen and uh, and its long-term aim is still it's still set. It is that we will complete not only the uh, the lunar gateway but also a base camp on the surface with international partners and contractors and then we will focus on uh, crewed missions to Mars and interestingly enough the timetable there has not slipped um, Mars will be in opposition which refers to the uh, times when it is at its closest point in its orbit uh, to Earth It'll be in opposition by 2033, 2035, and 2037. And uh, this happens every 26 months. And it represents the, uh, the only time, really, for uh, a launch window. So the missions to Mars are still on track for the 2030s, and China has since announced that they want to do the same thing. So in any case, by the end of this decade, NASA and a number of other space agencies, and that includes Roscosmos, China, and uh, the European Space Agency, and possibly India. They all plan to establish a lunar presence and a what NASA refers to as a sustained program of lunar exploration, which means, in essence, we're going back to the moon, and this time we intend to stay. And this is how we got here. 
it took a very long time to get to this point where we can once again plot missions beyond low Earth orbit and where we can be assured that the next astronauts to walk on the lunar surface are not going to be, uh, once again, a bunch of white men. And also that when a permanent human presence is established on the moon, there's going to be several flags. And in addition to footprints and flags, there will be the lasting infrastructure that allows for all kinds of of opportunities. Uh, not only exploration by astronauts and cosmonauts and uh, taikonauts, as the Chinese call them, but uh, also uh, commercial ventures, possibly lunar mining, most likely lunar tourism, and uh, maybe even permanent settlements. If there is a slogan that summarizes all of this up, it is exactly what I've said. We're going back to the moon to stay this time. And it's going to be happening in just a few years' time. It was a long wait, but it will soon be over. I'm Matt Williams. This has been Stories from Space. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Stories from Space podcast with Matthew Williams. If you learned something new and this podcast made you think, then share ITSPmagazine.com with your friends, family, and colleagues. If you represent a company and wish to associate your brand with our conversations, sponsor one or more of our podcast channels. We hope you will come back for more stories and follow us on our journey. You can always find us at the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society. Thank you.